Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I've been watching and reading Facebook posts and blog posts from Yogi Sharp, the equine documentalist, for quite some time. I'll be the first to admit he and I don't approach hoof care the exact same way, but if I've learned anything over the last few years, it's that conversations with and learning from others who do things differently can be really eye-opening and interesting to say the least. One thing I really appreciate about Yogi is he really considers everything he does and wants evidence for what he is doing. So I decided to ask him about some of his research and background and how that influences how he approaches feet. Awesome. So um, first, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the research behind hoof care. Well, I've always been one of those students at school who had to question why so if the teacher was saying something I never was able to take it at face value I was never happy being told something and just accepting it as as it was I always had to ask more questions um like for instance if I said water was a combination of hydrogen and oxygen I always wanted to know how they combined and they used to say to me oh that's that's for the next level don't worry but I was never satisfied when it comes to hoof care uh, for me, it's also about obligation, I think, because to provide the best care, I need to really understand what I'm doing. Um, but having said that, I think probably the most honest answer to the question is that I'm an absolute geek. Um, and I just love research and I love studying. So that's probably what drove me into it the most. Um, and I started um, really getting into it when I started studying for my BSc honours. Um, so that's how it really started. Well, I'm really glad that we all get to benefit from it um, because of your your equine documentalist page too. Um, and one thing that I've been more and more interested in lately is like the validity and reliability of studies because I see people sharing studies that you know they say this conclusion because of the headline or the um, you know synopsis of the study that really isn't what the study is getting at. You know, they're kind yeah. of misinterpreting it. So I was yeah. wondering with, you know, all the, the blog posts that you write and the Facebook posts, how do you decide what kind of criteria you're looking for to discern if a study is a good one, if it's reliable and valid? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it, really? Um, and the reality is, is that we all, if I, if I said to you that I always read through the entire paper I would be lying <laughs> uh, so very often you know the thing we do is we go to the abstract and we and we read that first and then we see if, if it makes sense um, but I think firstly it's important to highlight that when it comes to research um, if you're looking at a single study that study only shows you a truth really for that population of horses at that certain time unless it's um, you know, a substantial amount of horses. Um, and also, it's only going to show you the results from the protocols that they used. And also, very importantly, the study is always subject to the way that the author decides to analyse the data that they've collected and what conclusions they come to. So this that always needs to be critically appraised. And you do need to go through the paper and work out if 
the conclusions that they've come to is actually the conclusions that the data is showing. Um, so, and what's more powerful for me is, and what I tend to do is I look for groups of studies. So if you've got groups of studies that are all pointing towards the same kind of set of logical principles, then for me, that's when I can start to create logical implications for my daily practice. So, you know, when you've got things, groups of, groups of studies that are, are saying the same things. Uh, when you start doing that, you still need to apply those principles correctly and gain practical experience as to which theories actually stand up in practice. And also, the reality is, is that with podiatry, two different farriers will always do something slightly different. There's studies that have actually shown that, that you know. So what you, what you read is always going to be affected by how you apply it. And theory is only ever as good as, as the application of that theory. Like, for example, if, you, if we look at the studies, uh, like pick something out of the, out of the air, wedges, uh, well, I've done a few posts about them in the past, that many people and some studies have suggested, and that's an important word, suggested, that they crush heels. I know Renard Weller, for instance, recently discussed this. And we know that the point of force moves towards the heels with wedges, and the length of time that the heels are loaded through the stance phase is prolonged. So people logically extrapolate that the heels suffer because of this, but that hasn't actually been proven. But we also know that the wedges provide benefits, which Renard Weller also talked about in recently. You're talking about how um, it moves the point of force backwards and reduces the extensor moment and therefore reduces the strain on, for instance, a deep digital flexor tendon. So for me, if we provide adequate frog support and length and we get the, the wedge fitted correctly, then it has obvious benefits. But if you fit them wrong, without consideration for the potential consequences, then it does perpetuate the confirmation that leads to their need in the first place. So it does crush the heel. And again, in my experience, if they are fitted with certain important factors in place, that risk is mitigated. So again, you've got to weigh up what, what the studies may be suggesting and what actually happens in real life. And for me, they actually become a very useful therapeutic transitional tool as I do often actually begin to see improvement in the heels. So I think the point of that is that we need to critically appraise both sides of, of the argument and balance them with real world experience and logic and acknowledge that application plays a huge role in the efficacy of any shoeing protocol. You know, for another thing that studies talking about wedges talk about is that uh, suggested that the increased intra-articular pressure and increased load on the other flexor structures happens. But the ideal for those, as far as I'm, I'm aware, hasn't been established. So, so they're telling you that the numbers change. So in, there's increased load on the flexor structures or there's increased load in the intra-articular pressure. But from what point? You know, is that away from the ideal, towards the ideal? So unless there's an established ideal it's difficult to actually say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing so again that's where the critical thinking comes in when you put those findings against the studies 
that show the predispositions of a broken alignment, you then have a balancing act to work through to decide your own practice. So for me, catastrophic injuries associated with poor alignment way outweigh the risks of heels being crushed, especially when for me those risks are mitigated and I've actually found the opposite to be true. So that's the process that I go through with research. I take the studies that may even be opposing and I work through them trying to establish what can actually be taken from them and what makes logical sense. And you can't take a single study and especially the author's interpretation of, of the single study's data and just use that one finding to dictate your daily practice. So Yogi is going to talk a bit about some technical terminology and anatomy in this episode. And one thing he mentions often is hoof pastern axis. Now I'm someone who will use the term HPA or hoof pastern axis to refer to phalangeal alignment, which isn't actually correct. So I thought I'd explain a bit about the difference between the two. If you aren't familiar, HPA is the external reference of the relationship between the pastern and hoof angles, which we can assess by looking at it or more accurately by photos. Something we might more commonly use the term for is phalangeal alignment, which is different from HPA. Phalangeal alignment is the alignment of the bones in the distal limb, meaning P1 or the long pastern bone, P2 or the short pastern bone, sometimes also called the middle phalanx, and P3 or the coffin bone or distal phalanx. A straight hoof pastern axis means that the pastern and hoof angles are aligned outwardly, while a straight phalangeal alignment means the bones are in a straight line when the horse is standing square. This is easier to describe with images, but if someone says a horse has broken back angles, it means that that line is not straight and is instead broken backwards by one or more points, so the pastern angle would be steeper than the angle of the dorsal wall or the front of the hoof. If this relationship is referred to as broken forward, that means the line is broken and the pastern angle is more shallow than the angle of the dorsal wall. Imagine if you have a sloping straight line and you poke one point of it forward or back, and that's basically what these radiographs would look like if you tried to draw a line through them. Later, Yogi will also talk about the center of rotation, which is the center of the lower or distal part of P2, where the hoof rotates around in movement. There's a lot of other terminology, and it might be easier if you're an owner or newer to this to look up some of the terms as they come up. And I think, you know, with real world experience, that's where a lot of our own ideas and thoughts come into because a study can say, you know, a lot of really great things, but (laughs) we're also working with these real live horses right in front of us. And if we're seeing things help or if we're seeing things hurt the horse, we're kind of, you know we have to do what's best for them, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another really good example, in my opinion, for this process of critical appraisal, talking about alignment, was a recent study by John Craig. So he took thousands and thousands of x-rays and found that the perfect alignment was actually quite rare. But that's something I would actually agree with, 100% from real-life experience and something that other studies have confirmed. Uh, For instance, Clements, 2019, stated that negative plantar angles are now the most common hind hoof Okay, so, but but what's that actually telling us? Is something that's very common, does that mean it's correct? So if we're looking at the Craig study, for instance, 
I would come up with a different analysis of the same study. And this is the problem with science and studies, because the data is the data, but the interpretation of the data will always be subjective to whoever's analysing the data. So some use that Craig study, for instance, to imply that aligned is not correct, and perhaps we shouldn't aim for it. But my question is, is the data actually saying that? Or is the data saying that we have an issue that needs addressing, considering we also know that caudal hoof failure is found in as much as 75% of the shod population and is directly linked to lameness, which has been shown by Dyson 2011. And also, where do we draw the line between acceptable natural variation and something that predisposes to pathology? especially in the light of all the other studies that clearly show a relationship between poor alignment and navicular, for example. So, again, for me, weighing up a single study against the wider studies helps, I think, to guide what you do in your daily practice. For me, this particular subject has led me to choose a practice that looks to establish a straight hoof past the axis or as straight a hoof past the axis and near straight phalangeal alignment as is sensibly possible, or at least work towards it gradually. As the way I see it, if we aim for a aligned, we'll probably miss it by a working tolerance. But if we disregard alignment as a result of biodiversity without assessing the individual cause, then for me, I think that actually becomes dangerous because then you say that malalignment is normal. But then, okay, but what, at what point does it become predisposed to pathology? And I don't have the luxury of radiographs before and after every job. I wish I did. So for me, a straight hoof past the axis is what I aim for. And more often than not, a straight hoof past the axis externally will usually still be a few degrees out at each joint of the digit if you radiograph it. But saying that, if I didn't bother aiming for a straight hoof past the axis, then you have to ask how much more would those angles be out. So, again, the point, though, of all this is that we need to use our own critical thinking and logic to firstly question the reliability of and then correctly apply a study's data before we just accept the, the author's interpretation. Yeah, and I know that you just kind of touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe some more studies that have really influenced your work as a farrier? Yeah, I mean, so like I said before, it's I don't really have single studies. It's basically groups of studies for different aspects of the dietary that kind of complement each other. Um, and I kind of put them together to kind of create logical principles. And also I take... I take the bare foot as a plumb line for my farrow intervention as well. Like if I, I try to imagine what that foot would look like had it have never had shoes and, and if it didn't have certain deformations, et cetera, et cetera. So I very much use the healthy bare foot and the studies together, at groups of studies together as a plumb line for my practice. So for me, there's different aspects of podiatry and different groups of, of studies some are looking at hoof function, some bony alignment, and some biomechanical considerations. So they're the kind of three main 
groups of studies that have kind of directed my practice. And if we look at who function, so this is where I take the barefoot really, and I use its function as a blueprint for what would be ideal functionality for my shod foot. Because at the end of the day, nature and evolution has had thousands of years to create something that works. So we're, you know, we're never going to beat nature. So if we need to protect foot, let's try and mimic what nature created. So that, that's how I look at that. So obviously there are a lot of things you consider. Could you start with hoof wall mechanics, for example? So how does the hoof capsule work and move and flex and distort? The studies of Thomason et al., specifically study going back to 1992, showed us how the hoof naturally distorts. So we know the hoof wall is an obliquely truncated cone that opens posteriorly between the heels. The wall has to withstand two types of loading, high velocity impacts with the ground and transmission of forces between the ground and the skeleton, and also the tensile forces in the laminar attachment. Uh, and the deformation of the hoof, and, and this is the key, I think, is therefore very important in absorbing concussive forces. When the hoof naturally distorts, it has an inward movement of the dorsal wall, the heels expand, there's a depression of the coronary band, a sinking of the heels, there's flattening of the sole, and there's biaxial compression of the dorsal wall. So they were all shown by Thompson et al. Now, what does that have to do with shoeing? Right, well, if we look at the really old studies now, Snow and Birdsall, which I think go right back to 1990 or something like that, they suggested that the changes we see in hoof shape may be the result of a shoe restricting normal capsular deformation. Right. So what they were saying is that the shoe affects those natural deformations that I've just listed. That study was recently cited by Dyson 2011, which was essentially looking at caudal hoof collapse. Now for me, we can see a logical link between this natural viscoelastic deformation and hoof proportions and health. So in order to maintain hoof proportions and maintain hoof health, that natural deformation that we mentioned before needs to occur. Now, this was also suggested by Gunkelman and Hammer 2017, who stated the ability to efficiently dissipate the forces of locomotion directly affects hoof morphology. So for me, if we put these studies together and we put the studies of Balka and also Poss on talking about hemodynamics, for me, we can see that having a functional foot is really important in having a healthy foot. And shoes will have consequences. And by hemodynamics, you mean circulation or perfusion, right? So can you dive into how that all works a little bit? So let's look quickly at Balka. So Balka discussed three different theories for how the hemodynamic system works. So to briefly outline them, because he's done a ton of work, and, and I know he's spoken to you before, so... There is the depression theory, compression theory, and the negative pressure theory. So one of those theories states that the displacement of the digital cushion presses against the lateral cartilages and subsequently compresses the vascular structures. Another theory suggests that the dissension of the middle phalanx induces an outward displacement of the lateral cartilages. And this theory is somewhat backed up by Taylor 2005, I think it was, which indicated that the function of the digital cushion was mainly to counteract the displacement of the middle phalanx and not to provide a pressure force. But Balka suggests another theory, which is the uh, negative pressure theory, 
And when the foot hits the ground, the bars of the heels and the pillars of the hoof wall force a small shelf of the cartilage outward, creating negative pressure in the digital cushion. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter which one of these theories is you think is correct, and probably they all work together. But what we can take from these is that the caudal structures of the hoof, so the frog, digital cushion, the bars, are important in dampening the forces of impact. And they're responsible for aiding the natural deformation that we spoke about before, which, as we saw, in return, is important for the correct morphology of the foot. So, again, what does this have to do with shoeing, and how do I address that in daily practice? Well, if you look at those studies, talking about those important factors, and then you combine it with Röpster 2001, which showed that the expansion in the shod foot was restricted compared to a bare foot, but frog support padding returned functionality to the foot closer to that of the barefoot. And then when you add the study showing the improved morphology of bare feet taken out of shoes by Clayton, Malone, Davies and Prosky, it all starts for me to point toward caudal hoof support being an important factor in functionality and therefore a healthy hoof. And going back to Valka, who also spoke about the differences between a strong and a weak foot, this tells me personally that in daily practice, weaker feet especially, but perhaps all feet because of what we've just said, need this caudal hoof support. So I think to conclude all of that, if by looking at the functionality of the bare foot and the impact of shoeing and essentially non-frog contact, when a horse can't go barefoot, which is something I do advocate, then I want to provide or try to provide the same functionality as that barefoot. So if you reverse engineer the positive morphology of going barefoot and consider that weak caudal structures will fail, we then see, for me, how the correlation of the health of the caudal structures, namely the heels, directly affects the hoof proportions, the toe-to-heel ratios, and therefore alignment. So for me, looking after those caudal structures is indicated by those studies. So that's why that is part of my practice. So if we get a foot that's able to, like you say, deform or flex to improve that circulation and engage the frog with frog support, um, you say you've seen horses end up with healthier feet. And I know you often stress alignment. And of course, I've heard both sides of the coin at this point regarding alignment. Some people really focus on it and some are more focused on other goals um, in their trimming or shoeing. And usually both sides have really strong opinions. And I have good friends who, uh, you know, are on both sides of that argument. So I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. Um, But with your focus on HPA, I know you said you have some research that dictates your thoughts on that. There's lots of debate about alignment. Obviously, the study I mentioned before, the Cray one, is, is, is one that raises questions and there's lots of confusion about phalangeal alignment and hoof pass axis and there's, there's lots of debate about it. The amount of peer-reviewed evidence-based studies to agree with malalignment being okay is I think quite limited though so however there are a substantial amount of agreeing papers that outline alignment as an ideal and discuss the predispositions of broken alignment. Even breaking alignment from hoof growth was considered as having negative implications shown by Van Heel and Molman et al. So 
Molman showed that the hoof growth broke the hoof pattern axis and increased the moment arm around the distal interphalangeal joint, basically surmising that the effects of a broken HPA translates into increased load on the deep digital flexor tendon. And then Van Heel 2004-2005, going back a little bit, showed similar effects of hoof growth in breaking the hoof pattern axis, and then obviously the corresponding negative correlation to, to biomechanics. And then Clayton 1990 showed the increase in break over time of fronts and hinds with a broken back hoof pattern axis and an increase in toe first landings. And then you've got other studies like um, O'Grady 2018, Brown 2020 uh, said that a straight hoof pattern axis is important for optimal biomechanical functionality. But I think more importantly, again, broken back hoof pattern axis has been linked to pathology over and over again. And, and um, if we look at Wagus, Pack and Hansen, 2010, 2011, 2014, all outlined the biomechanical considerations and stated that the primary source of pressure on the navicular bone is compression from the deep digital flexor tendon. Um, and they all also stated that creating a straight hoof pattern was an effective treatment for navicular. Uh, Ruff et al. 2016 expanded on this, expressing the increased compressive force on the navicular bone from the deep digital flexor tendons was present in broken back hoof pattern axes. And then Ull et al. 2018 saying the same thing basically, that confirmations with increased dorsiflexion were found to mechanically predispose the navicular. And that DDFT lesions, deep digital flexor tendon lesions, corresponded with areas of increased load. So for me, the amount of studies that show a poor alignment is a negative thing compared to some studies that, that say it might not be ideal. I think for me, that kind of shows where my practice leans towards. Because, you know, we've also got Logie 2017 stated negative hoof pattern axis, more forces placed on the flexor tendons, which is transmitted into the navicular region. You know, and then you've got Turner 2020, which act who actually says there is no reason not to shoe for a correct hoof pattern axis. Now, I think that's quite a <laughs> profound statement. You know, we can argue that not many horses have a straight hoof pattern axis, but as far as Turner's concerned, there's no reason to not shoe for a correct hoof pattern axis. So, in other words, it's not going to have a negative effect but it may have a positive effect. And then you've got WIT 2014. In order for the horse to perform optimally, it is important that the foot is in balance. A balanced foot requires medial lateral and dorsopalmar balance with a straight hoof pattern axis. A balanced foot allows for the correct distribution of force within the foot. And that, for me, that's the important bit, is having equal or correct load share between all of the different structures. And for me, alignment is our baseline. And there's, there's plenty of other studies as well, but, and, and these studies are only looking at the front feet. The implications for the hind feet, from what my, I'm researching, extend all the way into the trunk of the horse. You've got Mansman, Pezenite, Clements, and Wormsley, who all link negative plantar angles to pathology up the hind limb, and then Mansman suggests pathology all the way into the trunk. But when you put all these studies together, for me, it becomes pretty clear that alignment is something that we should work towards in our daily practice. In my experience, hoof functionality and improvement in hoof proportions and therefore alignment go very much hand in hand. So we create alignment by having 
optimal hoof function. We also know from some of the studies mentioned and from basic physics that the distance from the centre of rotation to the point of breakover increases with bone al broken alignment and also the point of force application moves towards the toe. So then you've got other implications for broken back hoof past an axis. So Eli Ashar 2004 told us that for every one degree reduction of solar angle we get an increase in deep digital flexor strain of 4%. And we know that the extensor moment, which is the collapsing force that acts on the limb, is calculated by the ground reaction force multiplied by the moment arm from the point of force to the centre of rotation. And then this force, this collapsing force, is counteracted by the flexor structures at the back of the leg. So the deep digital flexor tendon, the superficial digital flexor tendon, and the suspensory. So the reality is, a broken back hoof past an axis increases the need for e extra strain in the flexor structures to counteract that collapsing moment. So all these factors follow on from each other and influence each other. These biomechanical considerations are affected by alignment and toe length, and that is affected by caudal hoof health, which is affected by function. So you can see how all these different things kind of interact with each other. But also these, this cycle works backwards so biomechanics also directly affects hoof morphology. And biomechanics are something I'm always considering and always trying to learn more about. Can you touch a bit on that? So biomechanical considerations mainly or simplistically come down to shoe placement and lever arms, which I talked about a little bit then, and balance around the center of rotation on every axis. So not just front to back, but hoof past an axis becomes one of those axes that you need um, that becomes part of the balance and obviously that of course starts with the trim you know the trim is probably the most important thing and then shoeing just complements the trim so trimming for alignment and proportions around the center of rotation is just as important if not more than the shoe that you put on so we just mentioned toe lever arms and how they increase flexor strain so for me the biomechanical considerations is about creating efficiency of movement and correct load share of all of these internal structures. As we said before, the lever arms are measured from the centers of rotation. The center of rotation of the distal interphalangeal joint is the point that the hoof rotates around. So our balance around that point dictates the workload of the flexor structures in counteraction to the extensor moment and also the initiation of breakover. So the center of rotation, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, is in the center of the distal condyle of the middle phalanx. And that's the point that the, the hoof rotates around. So that point has been established as an important factor for balance by studies such as Mark Caldwell's PhD, which stated that using the center of rotation as a base point proves to be an efficient way of establishing and maintaining optimal geometrics. Going further back, you've got the work of Dave Duckett, Gene Ovenick, Gene Ferry, who all also discussed this point as a datum for hoof balance. All of these studies, because obviously we can't see the center of the distal condyle of the middle phalanx externally, but all of these studies also suggest ways of finding this point externally. So Caldwell advocates a hoof, a hoof mapping system where you take a line from the base of the buttress of the heel to the inside of the white line of the toe and then cross from end to end to create a crossover point. Um, and that crossover point is where the centre of rotation would be 
Um, then you've got Duckett's Bridge across the widest part of the foot, which usually correlates with the termination of trimmed bars. And then you've got Jim Ferry, who takes the lateral of the hoof and divides the hairline into third. And the intersection between the first and the second third is the center of rotation. So I think on a day-to-day -day basis, I personally use Caldwell's mapping system or I use Ferry's lateral third. But um, however you do it, this point, the center of rotation, becomes where optimum biomechanics can be created around. Uh, now we have that anatomical reference point, we want to create balance around it on every axis, like, I'm, like I said before. So for me, I use a mixture of these studies to establish my shoe position balance. Uh, so the simplest way to describe it, and many people would have heard this course many times, is that I'm looking for a 50-50 split of the base around the centre of rotation from the widest point of the frog. So the widest point of my frog is, is a datum point, um, and that's my personal minimum length of shoe for the type of horses that I'm shoeing. Obviously, if you're, if you're shoeing uh, hunters or polo ponies or racehorses, you may have to compromise on that. But for me, with the horses that I'm shoeing, the widest point of the frog is my minimum length of my shoe. And then so you've got that length in front of the centre of rotation is my toe, my breakover point. This actually is where alignment comes in because it becomes increasingly harder to achieve 50-50 around the centre of rotation the more broken back the hoof custom axis is because the distal phalanx and therefore the toe is rotated dorsally. Everything has a more acute angle and the toe lever arm gets further and further away from the centre of rotation. Actually, it's basic trigonometry. So if you have a reduced reduction in the angle of the hypotenuse, which is the toe, then the base has to become longer. It's just, that's just basic Pythagoras. So this is where the balance on every axis comes in and alignment becomes an important factor in biomechanics because to achieve that 50-50, it's much easier to do that and it's much more practical to do that with an aligned foot than it is with something that isn't. But something that's important to understand about breakover is that just because reducing breakover has positive effects, like reducing the tension in the flexor structures, it doesn't mean that even a, an even smaller distance to breakover gives even more benefit. There is an optimum position because we have to appreciate the limb is like a spring and the tension in the flexor structures acts to provide propulsion with reduced muscular effort. So if we reduce the breakover too much, then the horse has to start using more muscular effort to initiate breakover. And Weller, Renard Weller also talks about that. So there is an optimum position. I think it's Ognacek that suggests a position for this. So in the average foot, the tip of P3 is one inch forward of the apex of the trim frog. And then the optimal breakover is then quarter of an inch forward of this. Personally, I struggle to use that in practice because in my mind, I mean, I might be wrong, but in my mind, because of possible deformations and also at what point does the measurement not apply if it's for an average foot. So that's why I struggle to use that in daily practice. And, and Caldwell advocates for the distance from the heels to the centre of pressure is to be the same as the toe to the centre of rotation. Now, in reality, when I do this on a daily basis, I map my centre of rotation and I take equidistance from the widest part of the frog and, and that's my point for my breakover.
You mentioned that you can actually have a negative effect when putting breakover back too far. Can you give an idea of where that might be or what that might look like? I think that the point at which you negate the natural recoil of the flexor structures, and I've spoken to a few vets and fairies about this, is probably the tip of P3. So you don't want to go further back than the tip of P3. But that's only from logical thinking. I think more research needs to be done, really, on where the optimum breakover is. But, you know, I tend to go to 50-50. Yeah, and I think hearing you talk about all this, the biggest thing that stands out to me is whatever we do to the foot has an impact. So whether that's going to be like a positive impact or a negative one uh, really depends on, you know, how much we're considering the foot and the horse and their biomechanics and their hoof function. So that being said, you know, a lot of owners won't necessarily know, or even, I mean, a lot of hoof care providers might not necessarily know what they're looking at or what to look for in an ideal hoof or, you know, their alignment and their distal limb. So do you have any tips for an owner or even a professional on assessing their horse in the day-to-day and their distal limb and maybe some warning signs to look for that, you know, we don't want to head down the path that might cause injury yeah um okay so for me this is when you kind of bring all the three different factors together to create a picture of of the ideal in your head of what you want to work towards <laughs> the reality is, is that we're so used to seeing poor hooves that we forget what a good hoof or an ideal hoof actually looks like and these things that we're so used to seeing are what i call unacceptable norms and they just kind of get ignored now. So thinking about the factors that we've spoken about, the ideal that I look for, and it's quite easy for anyone to assess really, although you know, some people may disagree because of talking about the things about alignment and stuff like that. But for me, these are probably the things that I look for. And actually, the first thing I look at is not the feet. It's actually the posture of the horse way before I get to the feet. If horses are perpetually camping under, for instance, in my opinion, that's a red flag. And I know that I'm likely to see morphological changes in the feet because we have to remember that the feet are a product of everything above it. And that's important for anybody to, to understand because it's very difficult sometimes to change what you're seeing in the feet if it's coming from higher up. So you need, also need to recognise that. So I want to see the horse standing. For the most part, I want to see them with vertical metacarpals, vertical metatarsal. So like a like a table and four legs and obviously they relax here and they relax there but in general they want to be having vertical metatarsals so if you drop a line from the horse's point of buttock so in the hind limb drop a line from the point of buttock and it should run down the back of the metatarsal so the metatarsal should be vertical should be able to drop a line down the back of that again obviously this depends on if they're having a chill and resting a leg so this is where it does become a little bit subjective and I obviously don't want people to start panicking, but it's something that people should learn to recognise is the posture of their horse. And actually I'm doing a lot of research on that in the near future. People can look up the, the work of Gelman and Shoemaker and you know there's other people that are talking about it and it's beginning to start being talked about is, is, is recognising posture in your horse. So that's, that's the first thing that people should look at. And again, the reason I start with posture is because the next thing that I look at is hoof past an axis. And posture directly affects hoof past an axis. So for instance, if the horse is camping under behind, then this will disguise 
a broken hoof pastern axis. And that's why it's very often missed because the hoof pastern axis looks straight because the horse is camped under and pointing the foot. So that's why you have to look at the posture first and then you can start to assess the hoof pastern axis. So to assess hoof pastern axis, you simply take a line through the middle of the pastern and this should be the same angle or very close to the angle of the dorsal wall. Now, the, for me, the best way to do this is to actually take a photo of the digit from the ground and make sure that the metacarpal metatarsal is vertical and actually put the phone actually sideways on the ground and at 90 degrees to the hoof. And that will give you a true picture of the hoof past and axis. And from this view, we can assess quite a few things that give us a lot of information on how close the ideal the digit is or the established ideal, the more widely accepted ideal. Firstly, lots of studies tell us that that pastern angle and the hoof angle should match. So that's straight hoof pastern axis. If they don't match, then we start to look at the difference between the heels and the toe angles and heights. Because as we said before, these ratios directly affect alignment. And I mentioned Dyson 2011, which suggested that an angle difference of greater than five degrees between the heel and the toe could suggest heel collapse. Another way that you can see this collapse from the same view is looking at the hairline. So if it curls downwards, you know, drastically towards the heel bulbs, then this can be a sign that the caudal hoof is failing. And if the caudal hoof is failing and the heels are failing, then of course you're going to have a broken hoof past an axis. Then we can take a line from the front of the hairline to the back and divide it into thirds. Like I said before, that's your Jim Ferry centre of rotation. And ideally we should have up to, but no more than, 60% of the foot in front of that line um, and 40% behind. And when you're shod, you should be looking for 50-50. No, so to summarise that, from the lateral ground view, we should have a straight hoof past the axis. The heel and the toe angle should be within five degrees of each other or thereabouts. And the amount of hoof in front and behind the centre of rotation should be more, no more than 60%, 40%. Now, after you've done that, then you start to look at the underneath of the foot. The reality is, is that that's the first thing that most people look at. It's the bottom of the foot. But if you do that, you've actually missed so much information about the balance of the foot that we've just talked about. I do agree that at least my mind is often geared towards first assessing the foot from the solar view or underneath to see what is going on. Um, you know, I usually look at the health of the frog and the heel bulbs and palpate the digital cushion or look at the collateral grooves for sole depth. Um, but what are some things that you consider when assessing the bottom of the foot? The first thing I want to talk about here is the frog, because I mentioned before that caudal hoof functionality is vital for hoof health and therefore portions of the hoof and therefore hoof past the axis, blah, blah, blah. So for me, the frog health is one of the most important factors in a healthy hoof. And yet we see the majority of frogs being thrushy, withered, contracted, etc., etc. Now, Taylor recently described what the frog should be. So she mentioned its width should be between 50 and 60% of its height, and it should have a small, shallow central sulcus. Now, I guarantee, well, certainly in my experience, most of the feet I pick up don't have a small, 
shallow central sulcus and most of them would be quite a bit longer than they are wide and that's just the reality we're so used to seeing that that we've forgotten that that's actually a sign of poor health now something that i look for also is that the heels and by that i mean heels of the hoof and not the height of the shoe should be at least the same height as the frog for me if the heels are lower than the frog from from looking at the back of the hoof then i suspect that they are they're failed and or have been trimmed too low because basically the for me the frog and the heel should be on the on the level plane which is why i use frog support padding in most of my chewing because going back to functionality and bearing in mind the unified use of the back of the hoof that makes sense to me so after look at the frog then we're looking for general symmetry now we know the foot is never perfectly symmetrical there's lots of studies recently talking about natural asymmetry and horses are not perfectly symmetrical so the foot's not perfectly symmetrical but gross imbalances do suggest that something's wrong and then again we should have 50 50 to 60 40 around the center of rotation and obviously a nicely concave sole so if we can see all of those things all those things are telling us that we have a reasonably ideal hoof. so they're the things to look for yeah, and hearing you talk about the things that you consider, I think there's obviously a lot that you and I agree on, um, especially when looking at, you know, the health of the foot and what is healthy versus not. And I think you know that, you know, uh, I'm someone who's, my practice is actually, you know, 90% barefoot clients, barefoot horses that I see, with the other 10% being in some kind of glue-on composite shoe package, and something I really appreciate about you and something I've, I've noticed in a lot of your Facebook posts and, and things that you've written is you don't discredit or dismiss professionals who, you know, work a lot with barefoot horses. You know, you don't just think that they're not a colleague or not a professional, which I really like. So can you talk a little bit, and you mentioned this a bit before, but can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on some of the studies that you've seen revolving around barefoot feet and how that's influenced what you've done as a farrier? Yeah, so I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, actually, and I found myself saying this sentence. I said to her, actually, I'm a barefoot trimmer at heart, but I use shoes uh, to gain time and comfort. So that was actually the sentence that I ended up coming out with. Now, if we, if we go back to what we spoke about regarding function, and the Rurbsturf study, and then seeing the studies that have shown improved morphology barefoot, so the Clayton, um, Malone Davies, to me, it's completely logical that functionality of the hoof, and importantly, frog and caudal hoof function, is vital for hoof health. In my opinion, I've done a video cast on this subject, for the hooves that fail, which is a vast proportion, that fail shod, the lack of frog support and caudal hoof support is a huge contributing factor. It's not the only factor, but it's a huge contributing factor. So the horse's conformation, management, diet, shoeing cycle, all of those have a role in it, of course. But the lack of frog support and caudal hoof support for me is a huge contributing factor in why so many feet fail shod. I think that is the biggest thing that I take from the barefoot, the fact that it works as a singularity. It's got many different structures, but they all work together to provide specific function. The frog, bars, digital cushion, 
as we saw from the Balka studies, play a huge role in functional hemodynamics concussion absorption and therefore structural integrity. So the reality is, and I'm a farrier saying this, the reality is that shoes negate this unified function to a certain extent, creating different levels of consequence for, different, for differently conformed and managed hooves. So some hooves will cope with it fine, but many hooves don't. And they don't cope with the fact that that hoof is not acting anymore as a singularity. But, and this is an argument for another time, but shoeing is necessary for different reasons. For me, the barefoot versus shod argument, in my opinion, is actually counterproductive and not in the best interest of the horse. Like, for instance, you've just said your business is predominantly barefoot. But some horses, I'm sure, probably very much depending on what they're used for and their confirmation, etc., etc., need shoes. So I've recently written an article on the future of horseshoes where I explore the idea that looking back at the barefoot is the way to innovate technologies for its own protection in the future. But for now, looking at the barefoot, this is why I push for frog and cordial hoof support in horses that need to be shod. And actually, I now question more readily if the horses under my care actually need shoes. If people use composite shoes and glues, then yeah, that makes sense to me, considering the study by Back et al, which showed the shock forces to be more similar to that of the barefoot in composite shoes. But again, they have their own set of limitations and the barefoot or the healthy barefoot on a well-conformed horse is always going to be best. We, and that's the collective we, barefoot trimmers, farriers or otherwise, need to keep an open scientific mind. Having said that, if we're going to shoe horses, then we need to mitigate the consequences for certain feet, as I mentioned before, as best we can. This is why I use everything that we've spoken about to direct my practice. And I think the same principles apply to the barefoot. We need to do the best we can for the time that we're in. And that means using the latest research while understanding that at any point, new science could prove everything we're doing to be wrong. And I think that's really important for farriers and barefoot trimmers, keeping an open mind. And we can't be afraid and resistant to do that because the whole point of everything we've discussed is that science, critically and logically appraised, should be our plumb line and guide for, for our daily practice. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you've spent so much time kind of looking at all these different studies and really considering what they mean for us in our practice. Um, and I think this is going to be a really a really great conversation for professionals and owners to, to start critically thinking about what they're doing. So thank you so yeah. much for, for being willing to answer these questions and, and taking time out of your day to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Sorry to, to take up your time at your client's house. No, that's right. Not a problem. I'm, it's good fun. Yeah. Have a great rest of your night or like whatever time thank it is there. <laughs> Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.